Game of Microbes, Hope, Hype and Helmets. The microbiome has generated a lot of interest and subsequently a lot of hope and hype. Claims are plentiful that it's the gut microbiome that is driving your mood, memories, food choices, metabolism, weight and immunity, just to name a few. Just like the Game of Thrones, the cast in the Game of Microbes is wide and varied. Also like the famous George R.R. Martin series, the characters are complicated. You can seldom categorically say that one microbe is either good or evil. Microbes are complicated. Finally, the microbiome has its own dragons and even own white walkers, dead, zombie-like organisms that can influence the fate of the gut of the Seven Kingdoms. So, is the gut microbiome the hottest thing since Carl Drogo riding semi-naked on horseback, or will it turn out to be as disappointing as the Season 8 finale? To make sense of the game of microbes, we're going to explore from Bitcoin to the Beatles to Bored Vikings, from communism to the Aussie film The Castle, and from gunshot wounds to Groundhog Day. Let's sift through the information. Welcome, I'm Nathan Rose and this is The Sift Podcast, a show where we sift through the sea of information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesize the information so that you are up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and well-being. We will learn from the lessons from the past, but also be excited about innovation and therapies on the horizon. Taking Fecal Matters into Your Own Hands Jeff Leach, a charismatic Texan, was in a rather peculiar and vulnerable position. Jeff was on the top of a hill in the open plains of northern Tanzania, watching a beautiful sunset. That sounds all good so far. But what was peculiar was that he was lying on his back and had been cycling an imaginary bicycle for the past 30 minutes, legs rhythmically kicking in the air as the golden ball descended behind the skyline. Even more peculiar were the items next to him a long turkey baster and an old plastic ice cream container which had some scant remaining remnants. Fecal matter from a strapping 25-year-old local man. They were the remnants. The bulk of said fecal matter were, Jeff was hoping after his pretend upside-down tour de France to stimulate the movement of the faeces, deep within his own large colon. Half an hour earlier, a likely confused Hudson man handed his donated stool in an ice cream container to Jeff to do a DIY Fecal Microbiota Transplantation, or FMT, on top of that hill. Jeff was obsessed about the microbiome, and he wanted to possess the gut microbiome of the Hudza. Why would Jeff be so obsessed with the microbiome? Well, let's look at Bitcoin and AI to understand the hype and hope of the microbiome. Winter is coming. First uttered by Ned Stark in the pilot episode, Winter is Coming became a catchphrase in the Game of Thrones to highlight the impending but unpredictable winter. In the world of Westeros, where the story is set, the seasons do not follow a fixed time and rhythm like we experience on Earth. Instead, they can last for an indeterminate number of years, ranging from several years to even decades. The winters can have a profound impact on the continent's agriculture, economy and politics. Understandably, the inhabitants can fear the approaching winter and many prophetically utter the phrase, winter is coming. Back on our third rock from the sun, when a field of science is discovered or a new technology is developed, before its fruits of labour are experienced, there can often be an unpredictable, long and barren winter. Termed the Gardner hype cycle, there is a graphical representation of stages of technology goes through before it's fully realised. Initially, there is a rapid acknowledgement in society of the technology, with the early zenith hitting fever pitch. This is where it can be a lot of hype around a technology. This point has been dubbed the peak of inflated expectation. But often an innovation initially fails to live up to its hype and doesn't provide the expected utility. Think of the internet in the mid-90s. Next is a rapid descent where the interest wanes and the technology hits its nadar, the point known as the trough of disillusionment. Winter has arrived. In fact, the long hiatus of AI's utility is known as the AI winter, where interest and subsequent funding had declined. Technological winters are more like Westeros winters, long and uncertain of an end date. 
I'm no expert, but do wonder if cryptocurrency has gone through the peak of inflated expectations and into the trough of disillusionment. Now, fortunately, history shows that technologies often do rise out of winter. However, unlike the spike of initial interest, the next phase is characterized by a slow and gradual ascent, where the value appears incremental and often underappreciated. Think of the internet in the early 2000s. This phase is called the slope of enlightenment. Finally, the interest hits a modestly high set point where it provides excellent and reliable benefit. Think of the internet today. This is dubbed the plateau of productivity. Throughout this podcast, I want to question where on the Gartner hype cycle is the microbiome? Much of it may be in the peak of inflated expectations. Some may feel areas of the microbiome have so far failed and are in a trough of disillusionment. Perhaps some are already on the slope of enlightenment. I think different components are at different stages and we still may have to manage expectations and be patient for the winter to subside. Now back to Jeff. Jeff, it seemed, was buoyed by the microbiome science and felt that the winter had passed and it was time to take the matter into his own hands. To help us understand why Jeff was so convinced it would be a good idea to insert someone else's fecal matter up his own backside, let's map out the excitement of the microbiome. To do this, let's look at a whodunit in Northern Europe. Starting at the finish line. At the end of World War II, the Iron Curtain was drawn tightly shut. The Soviet Union demarcated itself off from the Western and capitalist values, often with sharp and cold borders. Arguably the most well-known example is the Berlin Wall, where East and West Germany were seemingly arbitrarily fated to experience either democracy or communism. A similar, yet lesser known, sharp divide also occurred in Northern Europe, in the area around the Finnish and Russian border, known as Karelia. And it's here in Karelia, where a natural science experiment has unfolded since the Iron Curtain shut and subsequently reopened, that have provided valuable insights into health and disease. Karelia has a long and complex history of being divided between different countries and cultures. After World War II, Karelia was split into two parts, Finnish Karelia and the Republic of Karelia within the USSR. At the end of the war, the bulk of the incumbent Finnish population in Karelia were moved to the Finnish side, and Soviets from other parts of the nation moved to Russia Karelia. As time marched on, a huge gradient developed in the standard of living and health between these two groups. The Finnish experienced rapid economic growth and urbanisation, whilst Russian Karelia appeared to be remain frozen in time, stuck in a Groundhog Day, circa 1944. Even as recently as 2012, in the Russian Karelian capital of Pithkaranta, separated by a lake and only 200 kilometres from Finland, living standards still largely resembled those in Finland half a century earlier. These residents still lived in tiny houses on unsealed roads, often owned their own cattle, produced much of their own food from their garden, and gathered water from their own well. The Finnish saw huge advancements in economic growth after the war, but they also noted rapid increases in disease trends. Allergic disease began rising exponentially after the war, and Finland soon held the unenviable title of possessing the world's highest prevalence per capita of type 1 diabetes. Soon after the collapse of the USSR in 1991, Finnish researchers began collaborating with the Russian Karelians to explore the health characteristics between these two neighbouring groups. What they found was, compared to their age-matched Russian counterparts, the Finnish Karelians had six times greater incidence of type 1 diabetes, four times greater incidence of celiac disease despite eating less wheat, six times greater incidence of thyroid autoimmunity, five to 11 times the rate of asthma, despite the same levels of indoor dust and Russian dust actually containing more mites. And finally, five to 14 times more hay fever, despite both groups having equal and low prevalence of hay fever before World War II. Another striking finding from these studies was that both groups carried the same genetic risk for the above mentioned allergic and autoimmune diseases. There is a cluster of genes known as the human leukocyte antigen, HLA, which is responsible for presenting foreign antigens such as those from pathogens like bacteria and viruses to our immune cells to initiate an immune response. 
Variations in HLA genes can influence an individual's susceptibility to allergies and autoimmune disease by affecting how the immune system recognizes and responds to the foreign and self-antigens. Multiple studies have found that the Russian and Finnish Karelians possess similar HLA genetics, despite the vast differences in the incidence of allergy and autoimmunity between these two groups. So overall, the results were showing that despite very similar genetics, the incidence of allergy and autoimmunity diverted between the two groups since the end of World War II, and the gap appears to only be widening. This suggests there are some environmental factors driving a wedge between these two groups. Since the late 1990s, there has been a scientific hunt for the cause of allergy and autoimmunity in Karelia. Professor Tari Hatella, a specialist in allergy from Helsinki University Hospital, has been a lead researcher investigating allergies in Karelia since 1998. A decade later in 2008, Mikhail Knip, a professor of paediatrics at the University of Helsinki, and his team have doggedly been trying to hunt down the cause of autoimmunity, particularly type 1 diabetes. These two groups have collectively unturned many stones and have both come to the same conclusion. Colonel Mustard in the study with the candlestick. In this whodunit, suspects have been investigated and many ruled out. For example, as the two groups live at the same latitude, vitamin D deficiency in Finnish Karelians is an unlikely candidate. Indeed, serum tests show that vitamin D status is similar in both groups. Another likely suspect was toxins. As a country becomes more industrialized, they use more pesticides in their agriculture and use more synthetic chemicals in their consumable goods. Hatella measured 11 common environmental chemicals in blood samples of both Russian and Finnish Karelian children with or without algae and their mothers. Surprisingly, the Russians had much higher levels of 10 out of the 11 chemicals than the Finnish, not supporting the theory that toxins were driving the cause of allergy in Karelia. Okay, so far we've essentially ruled out genetics, toxins and vitamin D. There was another lead that researchers began investigating, as there were breadcrumbs detected as early as the 1970s. Throughout the 20th century, tuberculosis was a major health concern, and prior to the discovery of antibiotics, sanatoriums were employed as a one-stop shop to treat the disease. In the 1930s, Finland set up 17 sanatoriums in the great outdoors to deploy nutritious food, fresh air, sunlight and a mixture of bed rest, physical activity and work to strengthen the tuberculosis patients. With the advancements of antibiotics, tuberculosis cases went into free fall. But it was noted in Finland that tuberculosis patients, quote, started to march out of the old sanatorium and asthma patients in. Cruel to be kind. In 2002, a seminal and stirring paper was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, Jean-Francis Bach demonstrated that between 1950 and 2000, there was an eerie inverse relationship between the incidence of infections, such as tuberculosis, measles and mumps, and immune disorders such as autoimmunity and asthma. The author listed all the areas he had sifted through, such as genetics, latitude, toxins, socioeconomic status, etc., and still felt that early life infections were preventing immune dysfunction. He provided mechanistic rationale for how infections tend to bias the immune system to fight infections rather than fight itself. Thus, a lack of infections can allow the immune system to drift towards mounting an immune response on itself. This theory, dubbed the hygiene hypothesis, was compelling, so Nip and Haytala both investigated infection incidents in Karelia. There was in fact an inverse relationship between the incidents of H. pylori and herpes simplex virus and allergy. That is, there was a greater incidence in Russian Karelia which may be providing protection against allergy. However, the opposite was found regarding type 1 diabetes. Children who developed type 1 diabetes in Finnish Karelia had more and earlier infections in their first three years of life compared to Finnish children free of the disease. Likewise, in Russia, they recorded lower incidence of infections in the first years of life compared to the Finnish Karelians, thus questioning the hygiene hypothesis. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Sapiens The hygiene hypothesis, that you need a dose of tough love from an early life microbial adversary, 
was first pitched in 1989. But, as we just saw from the Karelian data, things weren't quite stacking up. In 2004, Professor Graham Rook, a London bacteriologist from the Beatles' vintage, coined a term that could have been inspired from a hit song from the album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band. The song title says it all, with a little help from my friends. Rook proposed the old friends hypothesis, which is that the epidemic of allergy and autoimmunity is not due to a lack of vicious infections, but to reduced exposure to old, familiar and mutualistic microbes that normally prime the immune system and suppress inflammation. Rook originally suggested that a lack of specific old friends, such as lactobacillus and even certain gut parasites, are needed to teach an immature and impressionable immune system. Modern living has stripped homo sapiens of old friends that provide us with little help. Dennis Denuto's Defense With one more hypothesis iteration and another pop culture analogy, we can go back to Corellia. There's been a slight modification to the old friends hypothesis that can be explained by an iconic Australian film character. In the 1997 classic Australian comedy film The Castle, out of his depth lawyer Dennis Denuto is hired by the working class Daryl Kerrigan to appeal a government's decision to claim Kerrigan's suburban home and land to make way for an airport extension. Denudo, completely inexperienced in constitutional law and pushed into the case by Kerrigan, is hopelessly pleading his case in court. When the judge pushes him to cite a specific section of the Australian Constitution to support his case, Dennis, unprepared, is at a loss. He replies, There's no one section, it's just the vibe of the thing, and repeatedly plays the vague vibe card through his train wreck of a speech. Unsurprisingly, the judge is not convinced. Now, whilst poor Dennis was unsuccessful in the Kerrigan case, in contrast, there is growing evidence that a vibe-like approach may be a good iteration to the old friend's hypothesis. Instead of the absence of specific old friends, like Rook first suggested, researchers have progressed to the biodiversity hypothesis to better explain the epidemic of immune dysfunction. In this model, they talk more of a vibe rather than specific allies. They suggest the loss of biodiversity in the natural environment, including a reduction in exposure to diverse ecosystems, plants, animals, and microorganisms, contributes to an increased risk of autoimmune disease and allergies. It's not the absence of specific friends, but more the fuzzy vibe of decreased richness and diversity. Over the past two decades, our two Finnish research groups have been looking into all nooks and crannies in Corellia to test the biodiversity hypothesis, and they have noticed a Dennis Denuto vibe-like effect. For example, the drinking water in schools in Pitkaranta was found to contain richer and more diverse microbes compared to the Finnish school water. Importantly, through mathematically sifting or regression analysis, the Russian water was found to have an independent protective effect against allergy. Similarly, Russian Karelian house dust contains significantly greater amounts of microbes compared to Finnish dust. When Hatala and his team only focused on Finnish Karelians, they discovered some differences between allergic and non-allergic individuals. When measuring the amount of vascular plants in a person's living vicinity, they found that healthy individuals had high environmental diversity in their home compared to allergic subjects. Moreover, the healthy participants were found to have a more diverse skin microbiome, in particular, more diversity of a high-order category of bacterium called gamma proteobacteria. Having more diverse gamma proteobacteria on the skin is like saying a country has more diverse types of mammals. Within this realm of gamma proteobacteria is a subcategory or genus called Acinetobacter, which the healthy group possessed more of. Again, Acinobacter is not a specific species. Even within mammals, at the level of the genus, you can have numerous species. For example, Felis, which contains the house cat, also contains a handful of other wild cats. So it's quite a broad level still. The Arsenetobacter genus has been shown to stimulate the immune system to release an anti-inflammatory and immune-regulating mediator called interleukin-10. With this new discovery, Hatella now compared the skin and nasal microbiome between Finnish and Russian Karelian children. He found greater diversity and abundance in Acinetobacter in the Russians versus the Finnish. Collectively, after decades of the hunt for the cause of allergy and autoimmunity in Karelia, 
These relentless researchers are firming up their conclusion. The latest review in 2023 from Hatella says, Overall, the Russians had richer gene microbe networks and interactions than the Finns, which could be linked to a more balanced innate immunity and related with lower allergy prevalence. Preventing allergies is child's play. With confidence in the biodiversity hypothesis, researchers, the Finnish government and the private sector have formed a collaboration in an attempt to reduce allergy and autoimmunity. The Autoimmune Defence and Living Environment, or ADEL, organisation, is making impressive inroads to restoring immune tolerance in adults and children alike. In a recent novel study, the ADEL group provided Finnish office workers with green walls in their office space. Now, green walls are a vertical arrangement of pot plants that are also equipped with fans, which allows the system to absorb indoor air, purify it, and recirculate the air back into the office. Now, after two weeks of use, compared to a control group, green wall participants had an increase in skin microbiome diversity and elevations in the important gamma-proteobacteria. Further, the green wall group recorded a shift in their immune markers, moving towards a less pro-inflammatory and a more immune-tolerant response. Likewise, the team have conducted multiple studies on introducing natural elements into daycare centres and observing changes in children's microbiome and immune responses. In their most recent randomised clinical trial, playground sand in two daycare centres were enhanced with soil containing a diverse range of microorganisms. Meanwhile, in a control group, visually similar placebo sand with a lower microbial diversity was employed at another four centres. The children played twice a day for 20 minutes in their respective sandboxes for two weeks. At the end of the trial, the intervention group exhibited higher levels of skin bacteria richness and diversity compared to the placebo group. Again, gamma-proteobacteria became more abundant in the intervention group. Also, again, the intervention group recorded a shift in their immune cytokines to a more immunoregulatory profile as interleukin-10 increased and the pro-inflammatory interleukin-17 decreased. Even two weeks after the intervention concluded, the microbial-rich sand-exposed children continued to hold their new skin microbiome profile. These results from the preliminary trials conducted by Adele are suggestive of an opportunity to introduce simple and effective strategies to people's environments that can potentially prevent and maybe even manage allergy and autoimmunity. In terms of the Gartner hype cycle, when it comes to biodiversity and immune dysfunction, Perhaps we are inching towards the slope of enlightenment. Now, so far, these results of discussion has explored the potential of the broader ecology of the microbes. But there's a lot of hype and hope in around the gut microbiome. So we'll now turn our attention back to Jeff and why I was inclined to insert foreign feces in his own backside on top of that Tanzanian hill. Jeff's backstory on his back end story. 11 years earlier to that day on the hill, Jeff's daughter, who was two at the time, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Upon the diagnosis, Jeff was angry and upset. From all reports, Jeff felt responsible. In his guilt and consternation, Jeff, an anthropologist by training, did his own sifting through the research to figure out why his daughter's immune system turned on its own body. By piecing together his daughter's short timeline, he zeroed in on his suspect. Jeff's rationale was that since his daughter was delivered via cesarean section, was breastfed for only a few months, and lived in a typical, relatively sterile Euros suburban home, coupled with a genetic predisposition, had caused the type 1 diabetes. Essentially, Jeff was also an advocate of the biodiversity hypothesis, and described his daughter's early life as if she was from Finnish Karelia. However, in contrast to the Karelian research that looked at the wider ecology, Jeff had become solely focused on the gut microbiome. Now, obviously, Jeff performing FMT on himself in Tanzania wouldn't have any impact on his daughter's type 1 diabetes back in Texas, but it was part of an act of his broader campaign to research and champion the gut biodiversity hypothesis. His N of 1 study was to investigate if the transfer of the putative perfect gut microbiome, the Hudson microbiome, would remain in his gut and free him from his recalcitrant western gut microbiome.
The Hadza tribe have been extensively studied over the past few decades as they are an accessible and collaborative population that still live a relatively hunter-gatherer lifestyle. In terms of biodiversity, the Hadza would be presumed to trump the Russian Karelians as the Hadza are living a more natural or ancestral lifestyle. Jeff believed that the Hadza possessed the holy grail of the gut microbiome. Indeed, research does support a poverty of microbes in modern urbanised Westerners. Several studies show that the microbiome for modern city slickers have about half the bacterial diversity as people living a simple agrarian or hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Jeff and many other researchers feel that this lack of gut bacterial diversity is the key contributor to chronic disease. A drop in gut bacterial diversity, or roughly speaking dysbiosis, creates a pro-inflammatory environment in the gut which can be the gateway to inflammation and disease through the entire body. Is the gut the seat of health? The idea that the gastrointestinal tract, and specifically the inhabitant gut microbiome, are central to health is not new. Hippocrates famously said, all diseases begin in the gut, whilst Nobel laureate Eli Metchnikoff over 100 years ago hypothesized that harmful bacteria in the gut could produce toxins, leading to various diseases. Nowadays, looking at the research, it could be quicker to mention the diseases that aren't linked to gut dysbiosis. But again, like discussed in the episode on serum vitamin D and health, correlation doesn't always mean causation. The change in bacteria could be a consequence of the disease or something could be both causing disease and the dysbiosis. There is evidence for all three possibilities and there is ongoing debate in the research on even the term dysbiosis, its meaning, and its clinical relevance. At this stage, if you see headlines saying there is altered gut bacteria in disease states or disposes linked to some unnatural irritant such as artificial sweeteners, glyphosates, or a particular medication, I urge you it's not cause for an alarm. It's interesting, and we should be grateful that there is research being conducted, but it's difficult and probably premature to draw any conclusions, especially dire ones. However, for the moment, if we assume dysbiosis is a major contributor to illness, then replacing the dysbiotic gut microbiome with a healthy microbiome using FMT donation, we should therefore expect to see benefit. Again, the idea of ingesting foreign feces for health benefits isn't a new procedure. Through the ages, there have been some very polite mentions of FMT. In ancient China, around the 4th century, there are records of a practice called yellow soup, where fecal material from a healthy person was orally ingested to treat severe diarrhea. The German physician Christian Pellini, 1643 to 1712, discussed the therapeutic potential of human feces in his Helsheimdreck Apothecae, which translates into healing mud pharmacy. Just for a recap, or for those not familiar, fecal microbiota transplantation, or transfer, FMT, involves preparing a dose from a stool from a healthy donor the stool is processed to remove impurities and pathogens to leave only the beneficial microbes remaining. The bacteria can then be prepared as liquid suspension or as a processed form such as a frozen or freeze-dried capsule or as some jokingly call it a crapsule. It can be administered through various routes including colonoscopy, upper endoscopy, gastroscopy or via a nasoenteric tube, a tube inserted through the nose into the stomach or small intestine. Thus, you can see that Jeff's procedure was more Pellini mud pharmacy-like than modern FMT. To state metaphorically, rather than literally, let's sift through the FMT research. Firstly, the current main use for FMT, Clostridium difficile, which is a life-threatening gut infection, has been unequivocally proven to be effective. It can save lives when nothing else works. However, outside of that, the results are as murky as Jeff Leach's ice cream bucket. Whilst we're in the gut, let's look at other gut afflictions. This is an area where there is some promise, particularly for inflammatory bowel disease. A recent meta-analysis found that FMT was significantly better than a control in terms of clinical and endoscopic remission of ulcerative colitis. Considering this condition can be difficult to treat, FMT may be a useful tool in the near future. A recent meta-analysis has also been published on FMT for irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. Looking at the eight randomized clinical trials, it was concluded that FMT provided no benefit to IBS and there was some suggestion that it reduced patients' quality of life. Larger trials are called for, but at this stage it appears that other interventions such as probiotics or gut-directed hypnotherapy 
would be a less invasive and more effective treatment. Moving outside the gut, there is tremendous interest and dare I say hype on the role of the gut microbiome in weight management and metabolic health. There are suggestions that the microbiome can profoundly impact how many calories we extract from our meals or how our blood sugar spikes after a meal or even how we crave certain foods and a whole lot more. Interestingly, some concern was raised in 2015 after a case report of a woman suffering C. difficile experienced uncharacteristic and rapid weight gain after receiving FMT that was donated by a daughter who was overweight at the time of the donation. Whilst this was only a case study, but as the recipient had never been overweight in her past and she claimed that her current obesity was not responding to diet or exercise, this added to the frenzy that the gut microbiome can influence weight and metabolism. In clinical studies, the FMTs typically are donated from young, healthy, lean females, so a transfer in these carefully orchestrated trials did not cause weight gain or worsen metabolic health. It should only help those with obesity and metabolic disease. A meta-analysis was published in July 2023, which looked at nine placebo-controlled trials of FMT and found that there was a significant improvement in markers of metabolic syndrome. The translation to clinical effects appear pretty good and perhaps comparable to other interventions, but nothing earth-shattering. The review also looked at weight and found no significant weight loss in these patients, putting a big dampener on the overall results. Considering that the similar or far greater results can be achieved with sustained diet and exercise or bariatric surgery or the new Incretin pharmaceuticals such as GLP-1 agonists, I'm doubtful FMT will be a key tool in the metabolic toolkit anytime soon. We'll come back to FMT for neurological disorders shortly when we look at the gut-brain axis, but for now I'll just mention there is a lot of ongoing research on FMT and much of it is exploring neurological conditions and mood disorders. There are trials underway for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, autism, depression, chronic fatigue syndrome, pain, and long COVID. It's clear that FMT has piqued the interest of researchers, but where FMT lies on the Gartner hype cycle is up for debate. I'm leaning towards it's at the peak of inflated expectations, but time will tell. Okay, so far in our game of microbes, we've looked at trying to replace entire populations of microorganisms to alter human physiology. But as Daenerys Targaryen showed in the Game of Thrones, you don't necessarily need a whole army of tens of thousands to conquer the Seven Kingdoms. You can just introduce one huge dragon to cause a stir. Let's now look when huge dragon-like single species are introduced into the gut microbiome. Journey to the center of the gut. In a spare office in a second-story building in Mexico, a pipette is squeezed, releasing what looks like the naked eye like water onto an absorbent bandage. A nervous-looking man from across the border in California named Moises, who has just transversed into Mexico, holds out his forearm and the bandage is gently wrapped around it. In less than a minute, Moises feels a slight tickle or itch on his forearm. The sensation itself wouldn't typically be much of a concern, but for Moises, he is patently aware of its origin. Although this is Moises' much debilitated decision, now that it's happening, he's feeling somewhat uneasy. The itch is due to 30 hookworm larvae gleefully burrowing into Moises' skin, taking the first steps, or whatever motions larvae make, on an extremely long journey through diverse ecosystems to their preferred destination. Once the larvae pass the skin, they dive into the venous blood supply and hitch a river ride to the lungs that includes a tour of the heart. On the other side of the heart, as the current slows, it inadvertently gently delivers the larvae to the capillaries of the lungs. The disembarked larvae now penetrate into the grape-like sacs in the lungs called alveoli. The lungs want none of this, so using their tiny hair-like cilia, they perform a coordinated sweep to raise the larvae out of the lungs in an attempt to expel them out the mouth. But this is all part of the ingenious plan of the larvae. Just as they approach the pharynx, where the windpipe and the food pipe unite, the larvae perform a goose step and plunge down into the esophagus. Talk about out of the frying pan into the fire, the descent back down is much more harsh. The next new ecology is the stomach, where the pH is strong enough to dissolve iron, but that's no match for the hookworm larvae. They nonchalantly soldier on to their final destination, the small intestine. This epic journey takes several weeks, and folks who partake in this endeavour can often develop flu-like symptoms, epigastric pain, and cough. They're advised to swallow their huck sputum, 
as this contains the larvae desperate to take residence in the small intestine. Now to the obvious question, why? Why did Moises deliberately infect himself with hookworm? These are parasites that have been a major public health problem in many parts of the world. Hookworms are known to cause gut issues, anemia, malnutrition, stunted growth and cognitive impairment in children. Hookworms have been endemic in China, Brazil and southern parts of the United States. In the past, some argue that it was a hookworm infestation that contributed to the stereotype of lazy and backward southerners. Why then would anyone in their right mind infect themselves with hookworm? Well, for Moises, it was a trade-off. To understand his rationale, let's look at what allegedly happened when Vikings got a little bit bored. During the Middle Ages, there was a subset of Norse warriors who were known to be ferocious fighters who were reported to go into a trans-like state prior to going to battle. These warriors wore animal skins, most notably bear skins, during battle to invoke the spirit of the bear. The Norse translation for these warriors were bear shirt or bear skin. This Nordic name is familiar today, berserk, and the warriors were known as berserkers. Whilst the berserkers, well, went berserk in battle, there was also reports they weren't always too well behaved in peacetime. When all was quiet in the Western Front, the bored berserkers were known to still unleash the inner bear. There are accounts of berserkers turning on their own civilians during times of peace and causing considerable damage in their community. How accurate this is, who's to know, but it can act as a useful metaphor for hookworm and other parasitic infections and human health. Throughout evolution, there appears to be an arms race between our immune system and parasitic attack. Our immune system has evolved under constant presence and pressure from parasites and they're forced to continually upgrade its weaponry. Considering the scale of multicellular macroscopic gut parasites compared to single-celled microscopic gut bacteria, you can get a sense of why the immune system has heavily invested in combating parasites. When comparing gut parasites versus bacteria, it's like an elephant inside a kitten rescue shelter. Or one of Khaleesi's dragons flying around King's Landing scaring the tiny residents. However, parasites don't really want to engage in a fight with the immune system. They'd rather be left alone so they can do what they do best, parasitize the host. A clever way to avoid this is to try and bluff the immune system into thinking that the parasites don't exist. Parasites can do this by sending signals to suppress the immune system, convincing them that it's all quiet in the Western Front, and there's no need to mount a response. Over a long course of evolution, both humans and parasites have developed more and more potent strategies in the game of cat and mouse. Recently, clever humans have developed a checkmate against parasites. With the advent of powerful anti-parasitic drugs, we've managed to successfully eradicate parasites in a metaphorical king hit rather than engage in the usual evolutionary protracted arm wrestle. But some suggest our evolved berserker-like immune systems, which have done a heroic effort at keeping these massive multicellular organisms at bay, are still in their trance-like state after the parasites have been eradicated by the drugs. In peacetime, Without the usual heavy pushback from parasites, the immune system gets the message that it's time to unleash an attack. Without the parasites to fight, the immune system starts bedding up on its own tissues. The results can be allergy and autoimmunity. This is the hygiene hypothesis in practice. Indeed, research shows that MS patients who unintentionally were infected with helmets showed less MS relapse, reduced disability scores, and even reduced MRI-observed brain pathology than uninfected MS patients. Further, when these helmet-infected MS patients were treated with antiparasitic medication, the reverse occurred, an increase in clinical and radiological signs of MS. Also, these MS patients' immune systems now had the profile of the berserkers. That is, their pro-inflammatory up-for-a-fight part of the immune system had spiked up the antiparasitic medication and their peacetime T-regulatory T-cells become quiet. Moises Velasquez Menuf, a science writer of note, deliberately infected himself with parasites in an attempt to get a handle on his own allergies and autoimmune condition. In addition to suffering from allergies, Moises also suffered from alopecia universalis, which is a total loss of body hair. His experimentation, thankfully, was reasonably well tolerated, but it didn't provide the game-changing results in his immune system that he was after. Nevertheless, Moises does wonder, and provides good rationale, that a loss of parasites or helmets could be driving modern epidemic disease. And he's not alone. Underground Worms 
there's a growing underground movement of disillusioned healthcare practitioners and patients struggling to manage chronic disease, who also resonate with this hygiene hypothesis and are utilizing Helmuth therapy. They're avoiding using the truly parasitic organisms to humans, such as tapeworm and hookworm, that some of the early adopters used. Instead, they're using what they considered to be mutualistic helmets, those that can inhabit the human colon and live peacefully there without causing pathology to the host. These include non-human helmets such as the porcine or pig whipworm, Trichurius suus or TSO, and rat tapeworm Hymenolyptus diminutia or HDC. Whilst there are these folks already utilizing these therapies before they've been approved for use, there is some documented and ongoing clinical research in this space. Some preliminary clinical trials show that TSO and HDC are generally safe and well tolerated and there is some evidence that they may help with inflammatory bowel disease. Interestingly, as more of a proof of concept, a series of studies have looked at the effects of deliberate hookworm infection in celiac patients. These studies found that administration of hookworms markedly altered the patient's immune system to create a profile that suggests these patients are now more accommodating to gluten. Indeed, the patients were challenged with doses of gluten, and whilst the helmets didn't cure celiac disease, these patients were found to be able to better tolerate intermittent consumption of small amounts of gluten. There are currently ongoing clinical trials for the use in multiple sclerosis, autism, psoriasis, and allergies. Learning to speak dragon. Some researchers appear to be approaching helmet therapy like the pioneering discovery of aspirin from white willow or digoxin from foxglove. Rather than simply administering the crude helmets for therapy, can they detect the chemical signal or signals from helmets that mediate their benefits and develop potentially more specific and probably more palatable therapies? Researchers from James Cook University in far north Queensland, Australia, are making considerable strides in identifying the immune-modulating factors secreted by helmets as they lock horns with the human immune system in the evolutionary arms race. The idea is to isolate these factors and use these molecules as templates to create immune-modulating pharmaceuticals. Professor Alex Lucas and his team have recently mapped out hookworm's secretome, the bolus of molecules secreted by a hookworm, into the human gut. The team have narrowed down to 20 proteins from the parasite that exert potent anti-inflammatory properties. Similarly, further down the Aussie East Coast in Sydney, researchers have identified parasite secretions that may hold the key to preventing type 1 diabetes. Dr. Sheila Donnelly and her team from the University of Technology in Sydney have identified a single protein termed FHHDM1 that is secreted from the liver fluke Fascolia hepatica. This protein has been shown to prevent the progression of animal models of type 1 diabetes and multiple sclerosis. This protein interacts with macrophages, prompting them to shift from a pro-inflammatory mode to an anti-inflammatory mode. It is thought that by shifting the inflammatory tone, the pancreas is spared the damaging effects of autoimmunity. Collectively, it appears science may be inching its way to the slope of enlightenment by learning the key commands transmitted by parasites. Perhaps science could not only control the dragons, but one day replicate some of their regulating properties, providing more controlled and targeted treatment. So far, we have largely focused on iterations of the biodiversity hypothesis and its effects on gut and immunity. As mentioned earlier, there is hope and hype regarding mood and cognition via the microbiome gut brain access. To explore this, we're going to find out how the first modern connection between the gut and the brain was made. A key character is going to spill his guts, but not in the confessional way. In June 1822, a young fur trapper named Alexis St. Martin was loitering outside a trading post on an island near Michigan. Less than a metre away from him, a musket accidentally went off, sending a bullet through St. Martin's torso. He suffered horrific damage to his lungs and stomach, so much so that it was reported parts of his lung, stomach and breakfast were propelled out onto the floor. Death seemed all but certain. Fortunately, stationed nearby was an army surgeon named William Beaumont, who quickly attended the incident by horseback. Beaumont saved St. Martin's life and performed around a dozen surgeries over the next year, almost restoring St. Martin to normal health. I say almost, as despite the numerous surgeries, Beaumont could not bridge the gaping hole in St. Martin's stomach. The patient had a permanent opening to his stomach. 
It would be insensitive to say that the crisis brings opportunity, but it seems Beaumont did make the most of St. Martin's portal to his digestion. Due to the nature of St. Martin's injury, and therefore he was unable to travel long distances, and he was unable to receive a government pension, to make ends meet, he came to a strange agreement with Beaumont. The surgeon convinced the authorities that St. Martin could stay in Michigan and earn his keep by performing light chores for Beaumont, and more important for Beaumont, St. Martin could be his guinea pig. Over the next 10 years, Beaumont performed over 200 experiments on St. Martin's digestion, none of which sounded terribly pleasant. For example, Beaumont inserted food samples into St. Martin's stomach through the fistula and carefully observed the digestive process, often removing samples to analyse them at different stages of digestion. These experiments led to significant insights into how the stomach works, the role of gastric juices in digestion, and the effects of different foods on digestion. Eleven years after the musket accident in 1833, Beaumont published what sounds like a real page-turner, Experiments and Observations on the Gastric Juice and the Physiology of Digestion. By all reports, it was actually a hit, and it punched above its weight with some of the contemporary books of the time, such as the Book of Mormon and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Importantly, this publication of years of tinkering with St. Martin's digestion became the foundation of modern gastroenterology. However, it wouldn't be hard to imagine if you were St. Martin and old mate Beaumont continually tinkered with your fistula that, after a while, you may get a little vexed. Again, the ever-observant Beaumont noted that if St. Martin was angry, his gastric secretions decreased. Likewise, if St. Martin was anxious, his gastric secretions decreased. Thus, Beaumont was the first to make the connection of the gut-brain axis. Waiting for the Revolution Thankfully, Irishman Professor Ted Dynan, considered a pioneer in the microbiome gut-brain axis, has a less dramatic and more patient-friendly origin story than Beaumont. A psychiatrist by training, Ted became interested in the connection between the gut microbiome and mental health because of his own clinical experience and research background. He noted that many of his patients with depression and anxiety had gastrointestinal problems, such as IBS, and that these problems often preceded the onset of psychiatric symptoms. In 2003, Ted moved to the University College Cork in Ireland to help launch the APC Microbiome Island Research Centre which is now considered the world-leading institute that studies the role of gut microbiota in health and disease. Some of the earlier findings Dinan and his team reported were that stress can change the composition of the gut microbiome, and that transferring the microbiome of depressed humans into germ-free mice altered the behaviour of these mice, essentially transferring depression into these mice. In 2008, Dinan was the first to demonstrate administering a probiotic, Bifidobacterium infantis, two mice provided antidepressant effect. He later coined the term psychobiotics to describe beneficial bacteria that can improve mood and cognition. In 2017, Dynan and his long-term gut-brain access researcher sidekick, John Crinan, along with author Scott Anderson, published the book The Psychobiotic Revolution. One section of the book describes the current scientific consensus on how probiotics and more broadly the gut microbiome interacts with the brain to mediate the potential benefits on mood and cognition. Firstly, there is solid evidence that the benefits are largely mediated through the activity of the vagus nerve. The bacteria in the gut lumen trigger the recently discovered neuropods in the gut wall. These neurons sense bacteria in the gut and send electrical signals to the nearby ends of the vagus nerve. This triggers the vagus nerve, which is essentially the body's bidirectional superhighway, to send signals back to the brain, Another way in which the microbiome can affect brain function is indirectly via lowering inflammation. There is ample evidence supporting the cytokine theory of depression, in which elevated chemical messengers of inflammation, such as tumor necrosis factor alpha, can contribute to the development of depression by affecting the activity of neural circuits. The gut microbiome interacts directly with the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, or GALT, the resident immune cells in the gut, and can lower inflammation and subsequently potentially improve mood. There are also suggestions that metabolites secreted from the gut microbes can influence brain function. Often in the popular press, there is a mention that microbes can synthesize neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin, 
and the gut contains the body's largest proportion of serotonin stores. It is implied this has an impact on mood. However, this is mostly just interesting trivia, as gut serotonin remains in the gut for functions such as motility, and it's very unlikely to travel to the brain. Also, the serotonin theory of depression itself has more or less been falsified, a topic for another podcast, and thus probably is not a good explanation of how gut bacteria may improve mood and cognition. In any case, Dynan and many others have built a pretty good case that the gut microbiome can influence mood. A question from here is how meaningful is this connection and can it be exploited for clinical purposes? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Are we on the cusp of a psychobiotic revolution? The number of randomized clinical trials on the use of probiotics for mood disorders have been steadily growing over the past few years, adding to the excitement of the psychobiotic revolution. However, again, perhaps not surprisingly, the results to date are mixed. Part of the challenge is the use of different strains, different conditions, the severity of each condition, etc. However, using broad strokes, a recent review looking at 26 studies concluded that probiotics could be an effective and economical adjunct therapy. That is, it can be used alongside conventional pharmaceutical treatment. However, the reviewers cite weak study designs, which makes it very difficult to detect a reliable therapeutic signal, and thus they suggest the results are inconclusive. Similarly, the latest review on the use of probiotics for other emotional and cognitive disorders found the same conclusion, mixed results. This review looked at conditions such as substance use disorder, eating disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, and neurocognitive disorders and autism spectrum disorders, and found that whilst probiotics were well tolerated, the benefits were equivocal or mixed. What about fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, for mood and neurological disorders? Well, there have only been a few and mostly small open-label trials, but some results are encouraging. Currently, there isn't much evidence on mood, and only a feasibility trial on depression found that it was well tolerated. Otherwise, the data on mood in patients with IBS who had concomitant depression and anxiety has found mixed results. Where there is an early signal of potential benefit is for neurological disorders. In 2017, an open-label, no-placebo pilot trial was used on FMT on 18 children with Autistic Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. These children had severe ASD and marked gastrointestinal issues, which is not uncommon for this condition. After eight weeks of the trial, there was a huge decrease in gut symptoms, and their Childhood Autism Rating Scale, or CARS, that score went from severe, down a category, to moderate. Moreover, two years later, the researchers reviewed these children, and they were still largely free of gut symptoms, and their CARS scores had actually improved even further. They were now on the borderline of minimal to moderate in symptoms. These results are encouraging, though perhaps the children may have naturally experienced some improvement over time as they matured over a two-year period. More research may shed light on this, and there are currently a handful of FMT trials in ASD in the pipeline, including randomized clinical trials. The other neurological condition with an early signal of benefit is Parkinson's disease. Like ASD, the pathology of Parkinson's is strongly linked to gut dysfunction. In fact, gut dysfunction, such as constipation, is known to precede the onset of the disease and there's evidence that the protein that is linked to the disease, alpha-synuclein, may originate in the gut and travel to the brain through the vagus nerve. To date, there is only one published case series that found five out of six Parkinson's patients receiving FMT showed improvements in motor, non-motor, and constipation scores, an effect that lasted nearly six months later. Again, there are about half a dozen or so randomized trials underway testing FMT in Parkinson's. Before we have a quick look at the horizon of probiotic and biome interventions, it's worth putting into perspective some of the foundations of the microbiome-gut-brain axis. Ted Dynan's research shows that probiotics and the gut microbiome, rather than directly improving depression, appear to improve our stress resilience. That is, they can help us cope with stress better, and this may help protect against low mood. Additionally, Despite the appeal of novel probiotics to improve stress and mood, Ted acknowledges that the cornerstone to a healthy and robust microbiome is a diet largely free of ultra-processed foods, such as the Mediterranean diet, and he highlights the emerging evidence 
of the prebiotic effect of vigorous aerobic exercise. Researchers are still teasing out how, but it appears clear aerobic exercise improves the diversity of the gut microbiome. Thus, until the revolution arrives, or more likely even when the psychobiotic revolution arrives, you can't go wrong with eating a whole food, plant-based diet and engaging in regular physical activity. Bonus if you do the exercise in the great outdoors and get regular contact with nature, such as gardening. Owning a pet appears to have some benefit to diversify the microbiome as well. Essentially, go live life and much of the microbiome may look after itself. Microbiome White Walkers Whilst generic advice like diet, exercise and green space are foundational, I acknowledge that there are still some that may need more specific microbiome-based therapeutics. We've seen that probiotics, helmets and FMT have some utility, but perhaps they are rather blunt tools. There is emerging evidence that iteration and innovation in these areas may put us on the path to the slope of enlightenment. One exciting area that is already in commercial and clinical use is the use of dead, zombie-like bacteria. In Game of Thrones, the White Walkers from the frozen wastelands north of the Wall wreaked havoc on the living. These supernatural beings were reanimated dead bodies that wanted to conquer the Seven Kingdoms. In recent years, zombie-like probiotics have been studied, but more for their benevolent properties. These are like friendly White Walkers. How do they work? Firstly, the live bacteria are inactivated, typically killed by heat treatment, chemicals or UV radiation. As the bacteria perishes, it releases its inner cellular components. It is thought that these exposed and accessible yet inanimate pieces of cellular debris act as signaling molecules that can inhibit gut pathogens and communicate with our immune system. The debris include vitamins, flavonoids, organic acids, short-chain fatty acids, proteins, amino acids, antimicrobial compounds, and many others. In fact, some studies show that heat-killed probiotics perform as well or superior to their alive counterparts in head-to-head -head comparative clinical trials. Moreover, there are further potential benefits to these post- or parabiotics as previously temperamental strains can be used and combined. Also, it can reduce the need for refrigeration, reduce manufacturing costs, and has the potential to better standardize these heat-killed strains. Wanted, dead or alive. In Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister had a bounty on his head. He was wanted dead or alive, he was accused of murdering King Joffrey and his father Tywin and had a large reward offered by Queen Cersei. He was also wanted by Daenerys Targaryen for a number of issues. In the game of microbes, there is another diminutive yet highly influential player that researchers also want to study, either dead or alive. Known as extracellular vesicles, these little packets full of valuable information hold promise for emerging therapies. Extracellular vesicles, or EV, are small, membrane-bound particles that are released by cells including bacteria such as gut, microbes, probiotics and even parabiotics. These vesicles contain a variety of molecules including proteins, lipids, nucleic acids such as DNA and RNA and other metabolites. EVs have been found to serve as means of communication between cells and can play important roles in the gut microbiome's influence on human health. EVs can be released from gut microbes and act like a cargo ship, travelling long distances to deliver information to all manner of sites, such as our joints and our brain. Many researchers feel that understanding and capitalising on EVs will put the microbiome science on the path to the slope of enlightenment. Perhaps in the future, patients will, rather than ingesting entire bacteria, either dead or alive, instead they'll be administered isolated extracellular vesicles to treat gut conditions, immune dysfunction, obesity, mood disorders and neurological disease. Perhaps in the future, we'll look back at probiotics, FMT and helmets as archaic and crude medicines, just like we now view leech therapy. I expect with continued research and refinement, the gut microbiome will provide many valuable therapies, the slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity await us.
Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. You've been listening to the SIFT podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Leaving a review really helps us out. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.